The story starts in the early 17th century with a miso shop and a pawn business in a small town between Nagoya and Osaka. Soon enough, they're here too in Edo, which becomes Tokyo, selling kimono and exchanging money. Fast forward 200 years, the two lines of the business separate, and here they still are today. On the left, the kimono business has become Mitsukoshi, the first department store in Japan and when it was built in 1914, the largest building east of Suez. On the right, Mitsui, a private bank become a holding company for mining and shipping and a thriving real estate business, responsible for the towers we see sprouting here and indeed all over town. Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, we're exploring Tokyo's low city, the flatlands northeast of the imperial palace, much of it reclaimed from the bay, where commoners settled to serve the early modern military elite, where banks and businesses set up shop from the late 19th century onwards, and where much of the real work of the city continues to be done. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. In this first episode, we'll be walking through the original heart of Tokyo's downtown, Shitamachi where craftsmen and merchants set up shop along newly created rivers 400 years ago. More recently, they've been joined by financiers, office workers and students, by high-end malls, electronics shops and made cafes. We'll start on Nihonbashi, the bridge of Japan, from which all distances in the country are measured. It's a few hundred meters east of Tokyo Station. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Nihonbashi. We've got a river, we've got a bridge, we've got a main road, but we've also got a cherry tree in blossom right next to two construction sites, the old and the new, juxtaposed as ever. The river is the oldest thing here, but it's not that old. It was created by diverting an older river at the beginning of the 15th century under Otodokan, the first builder of Edo Castle. We've met him in another walk. There was more work in the early 17th century. A canal was built from here to the castle to carry salt to the shogun. There was also landfill from the hills to the north. There was space for commoners to service the elite. So Edo, the old name for Tokyo, becomes a city of water, like Osaka, also in Japan, or like Venice, perhaps. And there are bridges over these rivers. The first one here is built in 1603, and the bridge encourages economic activity around it. The main fish market of the city is here until 1923, then it moves to Tsukiji more recently. It's moved even further out into the bay. 
Around the bridge also you get communication between the state and the people. Official notice boards telling them what not to do, but also satirical verses poking a little bit of fun. This bridge is also the terminus of the main road leading from here all the way down to Osaka and Kyoto. It's therefore the Bridge of Japan, Nihonbashi. Still today, all distances are measured to this bridge. Fast forward 300 years. Tokyo is now an imperial capital, and it's time for a stone bridge built in 1910, which we can see before us, with flowing arches, gas lanterns. And it's surrounded, even back then, by stone buildings, a bank, a spinning company. That bridge survives both the earthquake in 1923 and the firebombing in 1945. But then, in the post-war period, comes the car and comes the Olympics. In the early 1960s, an expressway is built over the river and the bridge. We can see it in front of us still today. It's opposed at the time and the opposition continues. Now, finally, in the early 21st century, 1.8 kilometers of it is being put underground at a cost of 2.3 billion US dollars. That will be completed in 2041. We're now going to leave this bridge and walk a little further downstream to the next bridge. Again, an important spot. We're going to leave the police box on our left, walk between two noisy construction sites and meet at the next intersection. We've made it to the next corner past the construction the site on the right had nine cranes going, and we're at another busy road and another bridge. This is Edobashi, the old name for Tokyo. Originally, this bridge was 100 yards downstream. Then, in 1653, there's a huge fire in Tokyo. We'll hear more about it in the last episode of this walk. And so a wide avenue, a hirokoji, is created here as a fire break. There are large docks for rice, for merchants, but there are also 108 stalls selling food, barber shops, tea houses, archery ranges, which also function as brothels. So we've got a poem from the 18th century poking fun at the yokels from the other side of Tokyo Bay who come to town. They don't get seasick on the boat from Kisarazu, but they find their eyes swimming at the sight of the crowds at Edobashi. Fast forward a couple of hundred years. In the late 19th century, the modern state begins to impose itself. The site of what had been the Fish Wholesalers Association, it was called Fresh Sea Bream Mansion, became the central post office. We can still see it on the other side of the road today. This isn't the original that burned in 1888. It was replaced by a three-story brick building with a clock tower, and more recently, by this slightly nondescript five-story structure. Then, after the earthquake in 1923, the bridge is actually moved closer towards us, where it is today, to lead into one of these new big streets that was put in to make traffic whiz around the city. 
that's when we see the building on the other side of the street from the post office, a round corner building by Mitsubishi, a warehouse built in 1930. The round corners mirror the canal. It reminds me of the warehouses of the East India Company on the edge of the city of London, which we saw on our London walks. More recently, over the top of the 1930 warehouse, we've had 18 floors added in 2014. So we're now going to cross this busy Showa Dori by the blue pedestrian bridge over to our right. We'll meet you on the other side. Historian Jinai Hidenobu has long emphasized how Tokyo in its early years was connected to the water that surrounded and ran through it. But here, he tells us how that connection was lost in the second half of the 20th century. But until the beginning of Showa, so 1930s, after Kanto earthquake, 1923, Tokyo kept characteristic of water city. So there were many uh, ships, boats to transport goods. There was a close relationship between canal, moat, and urban activity, economical activities. But after the Second World War, uh, we lost organic uh, relationship between water and city. Also because original function of water was lost or polluted with industrialization. Sometimes smell was bad. <laughs> Someone who was in the train to pass Sumida River, he was sleeping. The window was open. The smell was so bad, he waked up. <laughs> Unfortunately, in a Japanese city, especially Edo Tokyo, had disasters of flood. Authority of civil engineering administration had to think only protection from the flood without urban beauty, urban landscape, or relationship. So they began to construct high wall with concrete, so relationship between water and land was lost, separated. 1960 was the worst <laughs> period for the relationship with water. Around Tokyo Bay, there were many logistics places, so the difficulty to go close to the water. So industry and logistic activity covered and space along the river and bay area. Beginning of 80s, we could enjoy the period of a waterfront boom. But in modern time, there was a relationship, good relationship with inhabitants. But we wanted to re-evaluate this space, so we organized group for the promotion. So uh, every year, every summer, we organized jazz concert on the water. We could uh, hear music from the boat. We'll hear more about the importance of water, both later in this episode and in the final episode of this walk, Disaster, Prayer and Play. We've come down off the pedestrian bridge. We're coming down a quieter side street between the Mitsubishi warehouse and the post office. We're in Kabutocho, helmet town. Supposedly in the 11th century, a warrior buried his helmet here after defending Japan from the north. But it stays a swampy land. Then in the 17th century, it's reclaimed daimyo, 
feudal lords build their mansions here. Fast forward again. In the late 19th century, it becomes a property of Mitsui. We'll hear much more about them in a minute. Shibusawa Eichi, the great entrepreneur of Meiji Japan, sets up the first national bank here in the early 1870s. It becomes a landmark. He builds his house between it and the river. We're now passing under a busy freeway. Here too, in the late 19th century, a merchant house becomes the Tokyo Stock Exchange. So this area, Helmet Town, is the Japanese Wall Street. We can see the Tokyo Stock Exchange on our right now, a massive granite-looking structure. But e-trading, electronic trading, means that the trading floor there closed in 1999. So activity, at least by financiers, has gone down. Instead, according to Time Out magazine, this is now one of Tokyo's coolest neighborhoods, 34th out of 40 globally. We've got a hotel down a side street here, and over the road, Teal, a bougie ice cream shop. We're continuing to the end of this road and yet another bridge. So we've come to the end of the Tokyo Stock Exchange. We're back on another mainish road and we're turning left on this bridge. This is Yoroi Hashi, armor bridge. The story goes that a warrior threw his armor into the sea to pacify a dragon and to calm a storm. That's where the name comes from. But by the middle of the 19th century, we don't have a bridge here. We've got a ferry. It has 37,000 passengers a month to cross this small river. The bridge comes in 1872, as the modern state begins to churn. The current one is from 1957. So we're walking over the river under the bridge and entering the real beginning of commoner Tokyo. We're in Koyamicho. Originally, this is a small island. It's the reclamation at the beginning of the 17th century that means it becomes connected. There's a lot of trade here. It includes soy sauce. The soy sauce of Edo comes from about eight hours or 35 kilometers north of the city and comes here to warehouses on the river. Still today, Kikoman, you may have heard of their name, is based here. Koamicho is one of a number of small neighborhoods on this side of the river, each dedicated to a particular craft or specialty. Just to the north here, we've got Ningyocho, Puppet Town. There's a theater there. Also, it's the original location of the Yoshiwara, the licensed brothel quarter. Then it becomes famous for cafes for potters. Next to that, we've got Kobunacho. They make small boats. In the late 19th century, it's famous for fan wholesalers. But now we're heading back to the main drag of Nihonbashi, the center of this district. We're heading northwest to Fukutoku Shrine. We're going to make our way through a maze of small streets. We're going to pass under a freeway. You can find Fukutoku Shrine on maps. We'll meet you there.
We've made our way through a series of small streets, under the freeway, into a forest of tall buildings, and now we find ourselves surrounded by a grove of trees. On the edge of that, there is a small shrine. It's very well kept up, though, and it has a red vermilion torrey gate next to it. We're surrounded by tall, modern, but nondescript buildings, but the branding on one at least is clear. There's a Starbucks on the corner. We're in Nihonbashi Honto. It's the first town in Nihonbashi. It grows around the route between Edo Castle to our southwest and Asakusa, which we'll meet in the last episode of this walk. The cross streets in this town used to give the residents a view of Mount Fuji. Good luck with that today. And it's where drug wholesalers begin to congregate. Still today, three out of the five main pharmaceutical companies in Japan are based here. We're here, though, because of this small shrine, Fukutoku Shrine. It tells a story about the growth. It's an Inari shrine, one of 3,000 throughout the country. We've met a big one before in our first walk around Tokyo, imperial capital. Inari is responsible for commercial prosperity. It's well placed here among the merchants. This one is authorized to hold lotteries way back when, which helps with the upkeep. But come the post war period, in the second half of the 20th century, the shrine is banished to the rooftops as economic growth takes on a momentum of its own. It's only recently, in the 2010s, that it's descended back to ground level with the regeneration we see around us in these tall, modern buildings. But to understand that story, the story of modern development in this neighborhood, we need to make our way out to the main street. We're leaving the shrine at our back, turning right, and then when we get to the main street, turning left and pausing on the next corner. So we've paused on this corner. We've got two contemporary towers at our backs. Across the street on the left, we've got Mitsukoshi in high Renaissance style. On the right, Mitsui, looking like an American Beaux-Arts icon. But the story starts in the early 17th century. The Mitsui family are running Echigoya, a miso shop and pawn business, P-A-W-N, in Mie, that's halfway between Nagoya and Osaka. They set up a second shop here in Edo and a new branch in the 1670s, which soon becomes the largest kimono merchant in town. They also get permission to set up money exchanges so that the lords and others can get proceeds from the taxes back home. There's a famous print of this intersection by Hiroshige looking down this street we're standing on towards Mount Fuji. The Echigoya shop is very prominent. Fast forward 200 years to the 1870s. The business is already prosperous, but a new era means new opportunity, and the two business lines separate. The kimono shop, now known as Mitsukoshi, transforms into a department store in 1904 with a declaration about the way it's changing its business. It's in Seoul a few years later, and it continues to expand as the empire does. The money business, on the other hand, becomes the first private bank in Japan, then a holding company for mining and shipping, and then real estate and more. And here they still are. 
On our left, we've got Mitsukoshi. We've already met it in the Ginza, in our walk, Imperial Capital. But this is the main building. Originally, it was from 1914, built in high Renaissance style. At the time, it was known as the largest building east of Suez, with Japan's first escalator. That building's destroyed by fire in the earthquake, but it's rebuilt and it pays for the underground station here in 1932. By the 1970s, it's got the highest retail sales in Japan. It expands to Europe, but with very low operating margins. And so, more recently, it's been reorganized and absorbed by another department store chain. On the right, we've got Mitsui's main building. It was built as the headquarters for the whole group following the 1923 earthquake to withstand one twice as big. It's steel-framed, it's in an American Beaux-Arts style. Now, it's a museum and a base for Mitsui real estate who are responsible for the recent redevelopment we see all around. Behind that main building, we've got a 192-meter tower, which went up in 2005, for a hotel, for offices, for retail. The hotel is the Mandarin Oriental. We met that in Imperial Capital, too. The retail spaces include Sembikia, a high-end fruit retailer, which previously occupied the site. And then, on our side of the street, more buildings by Mitsui. Ko Edo Muramachi. Core Edo, the old name for Tokyo. This started up in 2010. It's part of Mitsui's shopping park urban portfolio. They have six of these in Tokyo, and according to the company, these places mix old and new to deliver not only the best made in Japan goods, accessories, and interiors, but also incredible cultural experiences, such as tea ceremony, kimono wearing, crafting classes, geisha entertainment, and culinary tours. Both branches of the original family, therefore, are still going these days, but department stores are struggling where banking and real estate continue to thrive. We're going to leave this history behind us now. We're going to cross the street. We're going to walk between the two buildings, Mitsukoshi on our left, Mitsui on our right, and walk up the street ahead of us, one block. So we've come to the end of the Mitsui main building. We've paused at the next traffic light. And over on our right, immediately behind a small garden, we can see the Bank of Japan. Originally, there was a gold minting family here, Kinza, like Ginza, which we've seen in our previous walk. That business was taken over by the government in 1868. And the bank is then founded in 1882 to sort out the monetary chaos that was roiling Japan at the time. This building was completed in 1896 by an architect, Tatsuno Kingo, who we've already met before. He was the designer of Tokyo Station. He's using the National Bank of Belgium as his model for this. We'll meet him again in another episode of this walk. And the bank continues to this day. It was granted independence from the government in the late 1990s. In the first half of this episode, then, we've seen how merchants and crafts began to congregate around the river leading to the bay and the road leading to the castle, and how business has continued to grow here ever since. 
in the second, we'll walk north into some quite different neighborhoods which remain distinct to this day. But first, we're going to take a break. Welcome back. We've seen in the first half of this episode how some of the old downtown has been transformed in recent years by big business. Now we'll see how other parts further from the center continue to evolve in their own way. The past is going to be more visible here, but there's more space for innovation too. We're walking north from the bank now. We're walking between it and the Mitsui building on our right. We're going to cross Edodori, that old road leading from the castle to Asakusa, which we'll see in the last episode of this walk. We're walking towards the rail tracks we can see in the far distance, straight down this road. We'll meet you there. These days, people gather in entertainment districts, Sakariba, near train stations. But here's Jinai again, pointing out that originally these districts were on the water and why we might want to revive them. There are a lot of, of spaces along the river, water, where people could gather, enjoy theater, drink sake, and have a many interesting, exciting experiences. So, also, uh, Sakariba, we say, bustling place, entertainment district, usually could develop around big bridge like Ryogokubashi, Edobashi. This is a typical phenomena. So common space for Japanese were found mainly along the river. Also Kyoto is typical one, Shijogawara. And Osaka, Dotonbori is still now common space for citizens. Tokyo unfortunately lost this kind of meaning of the open space, public space along the river. But uh, before Meiji, Ryogoku uh, Hirokoji, and uh, also across to Akihabara and Edobashi, there are several public spaces, Hiroba, which could have a meaning of common spaces for citizens. We should recover this sense with contemporary meaning along the river, because, uh, as I said, the relationship between land and water was cut, separated for the protection from the flood, so with a tall, high wall of concrete. And we should recover also use of boat, uh, water transportation, like New York, Hamburg, London. <laughs> All of the world cities began to promote to use, reuse ships, boats in the city. We have a big possibility, potentiality, but uh, Still now, uh, politicians, they don't understand this importance. We'll see some of the original Sakariba next to the river in the last episode of this walk, and the newer versions near the big commuter hubs in the west of the city, in another walk on Neo-Tokyo. So we've made our way under the train tracks. We can hear the trains overhead. And we've made our way besides Kanda Station. So we're no longer in Nihonbashi. 
Kanda is a very old term, probably dates back to the 7th century. We see it throughout the country. It means the deity's fields attached to a shrine. We'll see the shrine it's attached to in our next episode. It also means this land can't be taxed or traded. Fast forward, in the 17th century, as the town grows, this area becomes a patchwork of 35 very distinct wards, each with their own flavour. Around here we have a konyacho, the dyer's district, which Hiroshige immortalised in a print. We've got tacho, field town with its vegetable market. And we've got kajicho, where the blacksmiths hang out. Nowadays, that earlier history is hard to see. Around the station, we have a quite typical assortment of bars, of eating establishments, and of girly bars too. We're looking up at a sign now, which says that you can hang out in one of these places for 2,200 yen for only 30 minutes. But we'll walk past this. We'll continue up the same street. Now, it's no longer the Bank of Japan Street. It's called Tacho Odori named after the district through which it's passing. We're going to walk right to the end where it intersects with a very busy main road. We'll take the pedestrian bridge over that and meet you on the other side. So we've made our way down that long, long street from the Bank of Japan into this very different district. We've made our way over the very busy road that we can hear on the pedestrian bridge. And now we're turning right, heading towards the green railway bridge we can see in the distance. On our left now, we've got an old storefront with lots of vegetation in front of it. This is one of the famous soba noodle shops in the city. This one is Matsuya. There's another one, Yabu. They both date from the 1880s. And we're pausing here to tell the story of soba, which is also the story of this neighborhood. Buckwheat is cultivated in Japan from the 8th century as a hedge against famine, especially in the mountainous areas. Then, another 800 years later, we're beginning to get records of it being turned into noodles. With the growth of the city in the mid-17th century, soba noodles, made from buckwheat, take off as a quick, cheap food. And soba restaurants begin to pop up in commoner areas like this, like Kanda. It's delicious, but it's also a very useful dish to ward against beriberi, which is becoming prevalent because everybody is eating too much white rice. So they have a B1 deficiency, which soba can address. Soba isn't eaten so much for medical reasons today, but the restaurants still remain, and remain as popular as they ever were. We'll avoid the temptation to go in today, though. We're going to continue and make our way towards that green railway bridge. So we've made our way under that railway bridge, we've curved around on the road and we're standing on a road bridge above a river, but right ahead of us we see an outrage of neon. We've got a sign for Big Apple, challenge the number one, pachinko and slot. 
gain panic. But we don't want to talk about that quite yet. First, we need to talk about the trains that we can hear. The river is Kandagawa, the river that runs through Kanda, which we've been hearing about. It's another early 17th century creation. On this river, it's lumber merchants. There's a bridge here from the late 17th century, much rebuilt since, of course. Then, in the early 20th century, you get private railway lines being driven through here from the western suburbs. Eventually, they're nationalized, and a station building is put here because this is a terminus. The building is by Tatsuno Kingo. He's the guy who built the Bank of Japan. It's inspired, maybe, by Amsterdam Station. But the line is extended. It's extended to Kanda. The station is rebuilt after the earthquake, but it's closed in 1943. There's not much use for it anymore. It turns into a museum. And then, recently in 2013, what remains of it has been revamped as a shopping dining complex in a portfolio known as Ecute. It's a nice name, but it exists because it combines Eki, the word for station, center, universal, together, and enjoy. We'll come back to the neon later, but we're going to try and cross this busy road heading towards the Lawson station we can see on the other side. To do it, it's a little bit complicated. We have to walk over the bridge, cross the pedestrian crossing, and then come back to this side of the river. So we've made our way to the other side of that busy street. We're now going to head down this slightly quieter one between the Lawson station and a public toilet. We're heading for yet another set of train tracks which we can see ahead of us. And we're going to head into a small shrine just on the other side of them. Mount Fuji has been an object of religious worship since the early modern period. Today, it's an icon of Japan. Artist Nishino Sohei has managed to capture its many different faces in a collage composed of thousands of photographs. Here, he notes that even if it's hard to see the mountain from Tokyo these days, you can still find it in the city. People who want to see the nature, you told me about Fujiko. People who wanted to see Mount Fuji from Tokyo. I think Fujiko is created in Edo period. There are Fujiko everywhere, every place in, in Japan. Some Fujiko is, looks really same as Fuji Mount. We'll explore the relationship between faith and topography again in the next episode of this walk. So we've made our way under the railway bridge and we've turned left into this small shrine. Originally, 
The main shrine was one of three established by Ota Dokan in the 15th century. He's the founder of Edo Castle. He puts it in the dangerous northeast direction to keep the devils away. And he founds it with Inari deities that he's borrowed from Kyoto. We've heard about them before. That shrine then moves here across the river in the mid-17th century as the Edo shogunate is beginning to get going. And the shrine soon attracts other gods and other shrines. Now we have 13 deities in seven shrines in this small compound. They include Fukujushin, or more familiarly, Otanuki-san. Otanuki means raccoon dog. That shrine, that deity, is put here by the mother of the fifth shogun, He's good for marrying into wealth, for success in business. He's easily identifiable. You can see them around us with substantial testicles. There's also the female deity of Mount Fuji here. Fuji becomes an object of veneration in the Edo period. Here, there's a small pile of stones next to the shrine gate, indicating the mountain. And there's also Akiba Okami, the Akiba deity. He points us back across the river, towards the tall buildings we can see in front of us. That area across the river flourishes in the Edo period, but it's also hit repeatedly by fire. There's a huge one in 1870, just as the modern regime gets going. And so the emperor orders that a new shrine be established in the empty land created by the fire, with gods from the palace. But the people hereabouts think it's Akibagongen, He's very popular as a fire protection deity. There's always a bit of a gulf between imperial will and popular understanding. And so the people start calling the area around the station over there, Akiba Nohara, the deity's fields. The railway arrives in 1888, and so that shrine is pushed further north. But the deity also comes here and sets up residence in this small compound. And the area where he once was keeps the same name, Akihabara. To see what's happened since then, since the late 19th century, we're going to need to cross the river. So we're going to exit the shrine now, turn right, going back the way we came. But before the railway bridge, we're going to turn right again, across a pedestrian bridge, Kanda Fureaebashi, the Kanda Bridge of Encounters. We'll see you on the other side. So we've come down off that pedestrian bridge and we're plunged back into the land of Neon. Directly ahead of us, across a busy road, we're going to cross this road over the pedestrian crossing to our right, heading for Uniqlo on the corner. So we're heading past Uniqlo now and an inevitable Starbucks. We're going to turn left before yet another railway bridge and through a central passageway under Akihabara station. We've turned left into this passageway now and we can see a sign for Akihabara Electrical Town. That's where we're going.
So we come out of that passageway and ahead of us suddenly again this explosion of neon. At the end of the street we can see a sign for Lawox. We've got a huge screen trying to advertise things to us on our left. We've got Namco. This is now what many of us think of when we think of Japan. But the story goes back about 50 years. It comes in four stages. After the war, after World War II, the students of a nearby electrical engineering college start assembling and selling radios. Black market vendors therefore start to congregate as well. The Americans try to get rid of them. They're in charge at the time. But they agree for land to be provided for these things close to this station. And so, slowly, retailers begin to arrive. Act Two. In the 1960s, there's high economic growth. There's a boom in consumer electronics. And so Akihabara becomes electric town. Families come to buy home appliances. On the left, we've got a huge building, Radio Kaikan, which was one of the epicenters of this. Laox at the end was also popular. On the other side of the station, there's a Yodobashi camera, which specialized then in cameras, now in electronics. But then... Act 3. At the end of the 80s, mass retailers and discount stores begin to get into the game, undercutting the existing electrical stores. Electronics stores turn to computers, therefore. More than that, young men obsessed with various aspects of popular culture, otaku, come here as their mecca. To see this, we're going to walk down this road and turn right in front of Laox on the main road through Akihabara. So we've turned right and we're continuing down this street for a few blocks. We've got all kinds of stores around us, electronics and more, audio blaring out, enticing us to come in. Huge five-story billboards with anime characters on them. We're going to tell that story when we find a slightly quieter spot to stand. So we've just passed a building called Akiba Island and turned right after a creperie, a kebab shop and a place selling Kobe beef on sticks. The kind of typical mix you'll get in places like this in Tokyo. Back to our story about the third act of Akihabara.
The young men, the otaku, are attracted here for a variety of reasons, but three maybe are clearly important. One is anime, Japanese animation. Neon Genesis Evangelion comes out in 1995, and it leads to a boom in model stores with characters from the anime. There are also comic book stores selling manga. Mandarake is the most famous. It's founded in 1980, a little further west, and it's here from 2008. So there's a huge enthusiasm for virtual popular culture and the characters that people get attached to therein. But this popular culture also leeches into real life. As we made our way up the street, we were solicited. There's no other word for it. By young women in maid costume. They're trying to get us into maid cafes. They serve their customers very nicely. Maybe some of them. There are other things on offer too. In a maid cafe, a young man, maybe socially awkward, perhaps disempowered, can be a master for an hour or so. The original one, Cure Maid Cafe, comes along in 2001. It's a pretty simple affair. Its successors are more elaborate, more diverse. And then a third element: idols. There are many of these, but the building we're standing next to has one of the most important. On the eighth floor, you can find AKB48 Theatre. This is a 21st Takarazuka, the all-female review. But whereas that has middle-aged women fans as 90% of its customer base, this one is mainly for boys. These are idols you can meet in real life. Currently, AKB48 has five teams, nearly 8,000 audition for 24 initial slots. They've also sold 60 million records over their first 14 years. They started with Party ga Hajimaru yo, the parties starting everybody. The most recent one, Hisashiburi Lip Gloss, in 2022. It's also expanded over the years. The group has seven other offshoots in Japan and seven in Asia, including two in Bangkok. But that Akihabara, the Akihabara of the otaku, while it's still here, is slowly being displaced. And to tell that story, we're continuing towards the end of this street to Crossfield, the huge building in front of us. We're standing in front of Crossfield now. It's the last stage of Akihabara's development, at least so far, and it's our last stop. In recent years, there's been a gradual closure of the outlets targeting otaku, these young, socially awkward men. There's been a shift towards regular, family-friendly, tourist-friendly retail. As we walk down the street, it's clear that Akiba isn't only for young men these days. More generally, there's been a decline of the retail sector because of online commerce, but there's also been government-driven planning for more office space, and this is where we are now. Akihabara Crossfield is mainly a place where businesses can put their workers. It's also been critiqued heavily, of course, as a kind of cultural hollowing out of this once vibrant neighborhood. The commoners city has evolved in various ways. In some places, like Nihonbashi, where we started this walk, big business increasingly rules the roost. In others, like Akihabara, where we are now, it has to run fast to keep track of evolving popular culture. 
In between, in Kanda, there are smaller concerns and everyday lives. Already, though, it's clear that underneath the busyness, there's an older landscape populated by gods. We'll see this even more clearly in our next episode, which will start on Hijiribashi, Saints Bridge, which is next to Ochanomizu Station. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Yelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.